anyone thinks that these events come together in some kind of happy kumbaya moment of artistry and some kind of let's all hold hands and make a documentary, it's not even close. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Sky. So, Jenny, as documentary filmmakers, one thing that is so often in the back of our mind as we're working on a story is what if someone else is covering the same topic? Yeah, and that's actually happened a couple of times to our guest today, Jenner First, who, along with his directing partner, Julia Willoughby Nason, made Hulu's Firefest documentary, mm -hmm. which came out just days before the Netflix version, which I think we all remember. I think we all watched both. <laughs> I think so too. And they also directed Lula Rich, a doc series on Netflix about the multi-level marketing company LulaRoe, which was also released just right before Discovery Plus did a documentary on the same subject. I sense a pattern. Yeah. So we had Jenner on the podcast to talk about how he and his partner, Julia, approached these stories, knowing there was a similar doc in production, how they were able to secure interviews with some of the film's controversial subjects, and how they were able to pitch the story to major streamers. You know, working on a short that you know someone else is covering is one thing, but to do it on a feature more than once also um, must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic of discussion and I think is something that a lot of our listeners will probably deal with in this quote-unquote golden age of documentary where everybody is trying to invest in these big stories. Totally. So with that, this is Jenner First and you are listening to Rough Cut. I usually start out these conversations by asking how people got started in this industry, but I want to be more specific and ask, with Brick City in particular, which seems like it was your first big project, how you got involved with that project? You know, I started making films around 14, 15, and when I came to New York City when I was 20 years old, I was able to get a job editing around-the-clock runway shows, so I was editing there, and, and I was able to get in touch with Dan Levin and Dan and his partner Ben Solomon were were making this, you know, sprawling historical opus about the Lower East Side. And I was able to join that team as a producer and editor. And Mark Levin was the executive producer. And that was quite an odyssey of editing. There was 20,000 hours of video. There was almost a million photographs. And um, as we were finishing that film, uh, Mark Levin and Mark Benjamin, they saw my editing abilities and they told me about what was happening with Brick City. And I was able to kind of join on the ground floor and craft, you know, the five minute sizzle that got the show sold to Sundance Channel. And uh, that began an, an incredible odyssey, you know, it was really kind of my first high profile project. And I believe I stumbled on documentary through the craft of editing. And, you know, if I would have had my druthers, I would have been at Cannes, you know, with my scripted feature. But instead, I was on this incredibly groundbreaking team at 22 and, and won a Peabody. So editing has always been the way in for me and I think was part of the edge of our company, you know, was the fact that I could get in there and edit and really craft, especially in an emergency situation, blow up a film, change the POV you know, style, you know, I, I put hands on every single series we had. Hmm. Can you talk about 
how you transitioned from editing to directing? Because I'm sure that that's a transition that a lot of people want to make. Yeah, I mean, I think it was something that even when I was editing, there was a point of view. And that was really symbiotic, you know, to a lot of the different ecosystems that I was editing in where that kind of like, hey, blow it up and show us what happens or, you know, the, the fearlessness to reinvent a storyline or a character or to treat something like a scripted film and make it, you know, a lot more emotive. You know, I think that that gave me a kind of a signature approach to the editing, but every single team I ever went into, and I think honestly, it must've been pretty annoying. You know, I always saw myself as a producer, you know, and part of what began to happen was I was able to show incredible value as an editor. And I came to the point where I said, I cannot edit this film or this series without recognition as a producer. And so this is definitely not to be, you know, completely egoic and have my head like a giant hot air balloon right now. But what I'm basically saying is if you have that ability and you know you have that ability, unfortunately in this industry, it's up to you to keep advocating for yourself about your position in a film and that eventually if you really can deliver on that and you are a producer or you are a director and you're starting as an editor, as you begin to work your way through the industry, it's going to be those moments where you advocate and say, if you believe that I'm the talent that could really help this, I need this type of producerial recognition. But talent is talent, right? Cream rises to the top. And if you're a talented young editor, you're needed. And if, you're, if you really have that talent, <laughs> call me. You know, my email is jenner at the cinemart.com. If you're a talented editor and you're young and you're listening to this, you could have an opportunity because I see that talent and I respect it. And that's where I came from. And I always look for that talent in others. Hmm. There's so many nuggets to pull out of that. But I mean, one of the things you said that I think is so true is there's a lot of need for editors, obviously, but if you're trying to be a director or a producer, you have to really just like put yourself into those spaces because no one is going to, no one's going to ask if you want to just like, Hey, you've been editing for a while, but do you want to direct this film? No, yeah. No one's going to just come out of nowhere and say, here's this incredible job show running this premium docu-series with everything on the line because you edited something, you know, last month. It's almost like every single part of a project, let's say you're trying to transition from one craft point to that higher level of being a director or an executive producer. Every single chain in the construction of that project is relevant because there's gonna come a time that if it becomes as big or as impactful as you dream it could be, you will be challenged as the leader because you don't quote unquote have the credits or you're not big enough or the network is concerned with your ability to deliver. And it literally comes down to, you know, architecting every little piece of that DNA to make sure that you're not going to get shortchanged. And I don't mean that in an opportunist sense. I mean, in that, you know, when you're a first time director or producer, you know, you're not a known asset, you know, so it takes a lot of advocacy and, I'm, again, a huge proponent of hard work, of repeated effort, of diversifying the roles that you have, being able to step outside of your comfort and just, you got to make work. You got to like make work all the time. You got to just, you know, yeah, you're making a short film, make three more, have 10 projects that you're currently stewing over, you know, because we're in a climate where you got to shoot your shot, but you got to shoot your shot a lot. Yeah. 
When you talk about times that you were challenged or tested, can you elaborate on that more? Like, I don't know if you can share specific stories or uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you know, I would say that almost every single premium project we've made uh, have been challenging. I mean, with fire fraud, Fuck Jerry came after us with several lawsuits and we were going against Netflix and yet we were working for Netflix with the pharmacist at that point. I mean, layers of complications and nonfiction that you wouldn't really see in the trades. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you know, that project, we had to make split second decisions about what is the value of getting Billy McFarlane in the chair. And I felt like it would be very, very important to have someone like Billy. And I think our whole team agreed. And that was a decision too. That was like, then kind of taken apart. And, you know, look, I've never met Chris Smith, you know, in my life, I respect his work, but we threw a couple blows at each other. And hey, Chris, if you ever hear this, I'm down to bury the hatchet, you know, all is fair in love and war. But essentially, you know, that film was a total firestorm, no pun intended. And the two documentaries, you know, we were then at the precipice together, our respective teams, both documentaries, in another phase of nonfiction in which the warring documentaries became as big of a story as the story we were telling. And so that was a wild period of adversity and a nail biter and a total nail biter. And then when we came out with the pharmacist, Richard Sackler wrote me a cease and desist to shut up, you know, and I didn't, you know, I couldn't even unpack the levels of drama and adversity happening on our two recent projects. We have a project with Netflix about the Murdoch murders that's about to come out. And, you know, we were down there and it wasn't two filmmakers, it was 10, you know, and, and we were navigating access and we have access points to all of the people connected to the story, except for the Murdochs. And, you know, that project's been harrowing. And frankly, the call of duty, you know, sometimes is, is one in which, you know, goes against my own personal desires not to be involved in telling stories about murder anymore. I mean, I've told so many stories about murder. It's harrowing to sit with parents and bring their children back to life in a film only to have them die again in front of you. A lot of hardship went into making that film. And then you get to Lula Rich. These are litigious people. They still run a company that has a lot of money. They stand to lose a lot. And, you know, seeing that become one of Amazon's biggest breaks. And I couldn't even unpack the levels of drama and adversity happening on our two recent projects. We have a project with Netflix about the Murdoch murders that's about to come out. And it's harrowing to sit with parents and bring their children back to life in a film only to have them die again in front of you. So mm -hmm. if anyone thinks that these events come together in some kind of happy kumbaya moment of artistry and some kind of let's all hold hands and make a documentary, it's not even close. And I've crashed so many times in this business from the stress of the projects and the pressure and these networks that, you know, sometimes think it's a money grab. We want to be able to finance all of our films because we want to be able to make them the way we know they need to be made. You know, the last thing I'll say is this, these buyers are very scared right now. You know, I think what happened with Netflix, it wasn't just for Netflix. It was a kind of a Black Tuesday moment for our industry in which it was like, wait a second, the streaming audience has a ceiling and that ceiling is starting to encroach. So I have a great deal of empathy for all aspects of this industry and all sides. But boy, oh boy, is it a lot messier than people can understand when they click on a film on a streaming site. Yeah. Wow. 
Speaking of messy, I want to talk about the dual dock that you just brought up. You've dealt with this a few times, Firefest being probably the most famous example, but also now Lula Rich. And it sounds like this new film that you're working on. I don't know if you were being hyperbolic when you're talking about the 10 filmmakers that you're competing with on this other film, but like, you know, very well could be 10 filmmakers if it's a really good juicy story. I think it was 10 right after the roadside shooting where Alec Murdoch staged a shooting and no one knew what happened. And this, this story went international and, and it was just in the, in the zeitgeist so extremely. I think there were probably eight to 10 different stakeholders that were trying to do the exact same thing. Hmm. Some of them were podcasters, some of them were filmmakers. And all said and done, there's four that are going to be distributed as nonfiction series. And, and I believe two of them have already come out. CNN did one. Discovery did one. You know, we have ours for Netflix and there's one for HBO Max. So, I mean, it's almost like a circus at that point. You know, I mean, yeah. it even felt like a circus on Lula Rich and on, on Firefrog felt like a circus. You know? yeah. and, and But it just goes with the territory, I guess, nowadays, you know, in the premium documentary landscape. It's just kind of part of what we're all dealing with. You know, there's a lot of competition out there. And in a way, it's kind of crazy to say it, but the competition makes the project a little juicier, right? Mm-hmm. We saw with Firefrog. Would it have received that much attention if there wasn't two documentaries beefing with each other and it wasn't this kind of like sub story? Probably not, you know? And so we benefited from that. Yeah. Can you talk about On Fire Fraud or Lula Rich? When you know that there is another film being made about the same subject, how do you navigate that? Are you talking to the other team? Do you know what kind of angle they're taking? Never. I mean, we do what we do. We move at the speed we move. For us, it's really about the voices, the authenticity, the access point, the archival, the angle. But I think at this point, we can sit down with any source and any subject and say, hey, look, this is what we've done. This is why we've done what we've done. This is what happens when we do what we do. If you believe that the story should be told, we believe it should be told with your voice in it. And if your voice isn't in it, your voice is going to be missing from the historical record. And there's so many different ways in which we honestly and with a great deal of authenticity relate to our subjects and, and spell it out for them and say, well, here's a platform that's going to reach more people. Here's a take of the story that we're most interested in that maybe our peers are less interested in. And without you know disclosing all of our different trade secrets, I don't think people make decisions to work with us because we bamboozled them. People make decisions to work with us because they're actually smart and the subjects and and people who are down on the ground for these stories and have lost loved ones and have, you know, gone through a terrible scam and have lost things. They're smart enough to look at all the data and make a decision to work with us. And I think that that's the only angle we've been able to really keep working over and over and over again was the ability to believe that we were the best partner for them to have to tell the story. And similarly, we stand by when someone has, quote unquote, you know, wronged the world and someone is labeled a villain. I think that ultimately we don't believe in that because I think it's quite judgmental and one sided for a filmmaker or a viewer or whoever to believe that they can understand reality so comprehensively that they know the exact motivations and the exact points in which this person was corruptible, made bad decisions, and is evil. 
I think that there are these fatal flaws that we all have inside of us. And I think why our stories are unique and iconic is that we're willing to go and make a 360 degree story about all aspects, including the fallacies of people and their character defects and all of the decisions they made that were the wrong ones. We will sit with a humanist lens and really talk to people and not assume that we know exactly why they decided to do what they did or how they feel today having done what they did. And we allow all of our subjects to give us that vulnerability, but sometimes, guess what? They're full of shit. Look at Lula Rich, you know? Sometimes people are still in the hustle and they're not ready to come out. Speaking of Lula Rich and Billy McFarland, I think anyone would understand why the victims of a scam like that or participants who end up being victims would be inclined to participate in a documentary about it. But what is the incentive for someone like Billy McFarland or for the Lula Rich people who, you know, they know that this may make them look bad? Like, how do you make them comfortable with being on camera? I look them in the eyes and I tell them the truth. And the truth is, is that we're most interested in telling the truth. And if you believe that you hold a piece of that truth, that if you don't sit with us, there's going to be part of this story that can never scratch the surface of that truth without you sitting down. And it's a pretty simple tact. Hmm. And it's delivered eye to eye. And it's delivered like a human being. And it's definitely not a cat and mouse game that I'm going to sit here on a podcast and say, well, look. This is how I scam the scammer. And I go in there and I, I target their narcissism and I try to figure out the point in which they're going to No, I think that ultimately that's a little bit crass. I want to spell it out very clearly. I'm not a big fan of true crime. I'm not a big fan of taking a crime and a murder and telling you all the DNA and the forensics and bless all the filmmakers that make that work. There's so many people watching it. They love it. They absolutely love it. You're going to be in work forever, and there's no judgment here. And I think that that is really important work, and it's been laid out by some of the masters who came before us, like Errol Morris and others. There's a wonderful true crime out there at any given second. What we make here at the Cinemart is called true justice. And what we believe is there's a nexus point in which there's other crimes connected to a crime, in which there's justice that hasn't been served, that there's something impeding justice. And we're very excited to announce our next project that's extremely top secret, and I can't speak about it now, but it falls in line with that tradition. And that documentary filmmakers, regardless of the ethics and sort of the old guard and the kind of, you know, stay objective and the journalistic integrity portion of it, I don't align with that. I think I have a role to play as a documentary filmmaker, especially for people that have lost loved ones who have been killed that no one knows about or that corruption that's been rife and no justice has been served or scams that have been perpetrated on the voiceless who have no voice and who need us to come in there and put a spotlight and a megaphone on what happened to them. So we take a different approach. Our approach is true justice. And I think that that's evergreen. No matter what happens with the trends, no matter what happens with the streamers, that people and human beings are going to want to believe in the greater good of other humans to finally make good on things that have been done wrong. And that scratches, I think, an itch inside people that is timeless. And so Cinemart's not going to ever slow down on true justice. We're, we're happy to experiment with a bunch of other genres right now. You know, I think one genre that I'm most excited about is comfort, true comfort, you know, like programs that really elicit, you know, a sense of warmth and again, humanity. And I think that 
our premium brand is not just, you know, limited to social justice or con, you know, we've been credited with really ushering in the true con with fire fraud, you know, but for us, premium can be, can be joy. Premium can be laughter. Premium is, is a pretty open-ended label. As long as it's, you know, everybody knows when they're watching something premium because it's elevated and we strive to elevate everything we do. So that's really where we're at. I assume that you, and you've said explicitly that you are in a lot of pitch meetings with big streamers. And I think that the craft of a pitch is very much like an art. And, you know, I'm sure it gets easier as streamers are more familiar with your work. But can you talk about how you craft a pitch and what the most important part of a pitch is? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because a good pitch man can also look like Billy McFarlane, right? Yeah. A good pitch a man can be all confidence. Um, you know, one thing that despite the hyperbole and all the kind of different ways in which I can goose up a story and make it be the biggest thing that's ever happened, there's a passion that is evident for any story that I walk into the room with or that we walk into the room with as, as the Cinemart. And, and I feel like I, I can't count, but probably hundreds, if not a thousand pitches at this point over the course of my career, right? And I think that in the beginning, there was this sense of, you know, I really want to tell this story. Like, could you be the person to help me tell this story, right? And this kind of nerves, almost in a way insecurity to know that I was in need of an opportunity and in the sense of like really kind of like stumbling through that, you know, and, and caring so much about that project. And I think with, with age, with experience, with delivering a lot of big events, if we go and we put our name behind a project and I step inside a room and I say, this is the project and this is how it's going to go down, you know, and, and there's some, you know, what may appear to be fantastical, you know, uh, aspects of it. All of it is within the realm of possibility. I'm not bullshitting in these pitches. And I am passionate. And I am excited. And I think that, you know, someone's got to be able to read your passion. And it's a fine line between reading your passion and you being full of shit. And if you're full of shit, someone's going to find out. If you're not full of shit, play your hand. You know, be passionate about what you're doing. And I think also be flexible in a pitch to go with the flow of where that buyer is at. Because, you know, nowadays films are made in concert with networks because it has to fit for what they're doing. And, you know, if you're too set in your ways and you're way too much of an auteur, unfortunately, I don't think auteurs get that far in, in the non premium nonfiction business today because you have to be willing to, to move with it. And I think nowadays having pitches that are a little bit more ambidextrous so that you're not coming in and saying exactly what you think it is in every regard and that there's some room for some collaboration between you and the buyer because ultimately it's it's a very competitive landscape and at some point you're going to have to be willing to compromise and if a buyer cannot sense your ability to compromise in the room you know you may not be an attractive partner for them and so i think that the altruism is key, the passion is key, the commitment, the sense of knowing your hand and playing it. But you got to be able to lick your finger and put it up in the air and figure out which way the wind's blowing. And that means being able to really take what you have and adapt it for the best possible partner else. It's not going to be distributed. It's just way too competitive nowadays for an auteur to make a film and get it to a film festival and it, and it reaches millions of people. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's not our industry anymore. So I would say... Believe in what you're doing, make a compelling pitch, come in there with the whole thing outlined 
and be ready to workshop it and make it what it needs to be if there's interest, because interest is quite a privilege these days. Well, that's a good place to end. I wish that we had more time with you because there's so many follow-up questions I have, but I'm very thankful that you made the time for this and this was fascinating and good luck with all your exciting projects coming up. Is there anything that we should link to in the show notes? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm available to young filmmakers, to all filmmakers, to producers. You know, I put my, I put my personal email in this podcast. If you're listening and you want to talk to me, I'm accessible and I'm just a worker amongst workers. I'm part of the proletariat of documentary filmmaking. I don't believe in the prestige of it all. And, um, you know, all the best to those who are making work today. Rough Cuts hosted and produced by Jenny Butler and Sky Dylan Robbins. Abby Kittengore, Amy DiGiacomo, and Kaylee Fox Shannon are our booking producers. Audrey Horowitz is our editor, and our original music is by Zach Wright. And this podcast is part of the Video Consortium, a global nonprofit media org that connects the world's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists to tell bold stories that catalyze positive change. You can become a member and join our global community of nonfiction storytellers at videoconsortium.org. And if you like the show, you can follow us on Instagram at, at roughcutpodcast or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. These are nonprofit endeavors with a mission to democratize the industry playing field for all. So if you want to support VC and this podcast, we would love if you'd head to videoconsortium.org to donate. Thanks for listening and see you next time.